Thank you so much, Pastor. How many of you remember me from last time? Anybody? Okay, we got four of you. Very good. Thank you. The rest of you are here. You just don't remember me. But it's great to be back. I love this church. I love this part of the country. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I apologize profusely that we beat y'all last Sunday. Uh, you know, I had nothing to do with it, but uh, but our coach of the Broncos was trained here in New England, so uh, you know, obviously it was good training. But it's great to be here. I'm married to a wonderful wife Donna, who does not travel with me very often because. Uh, she doesn't enjoy it that much, <laughs> but uh, she goes on the fun trips, and I have four children, and I just bring you greetings from World Venture, and uh, in case you don't know who we are, which I don't assume you know who we are, I have a little bulletin insert there that gives you a snapshot of World Venture if you'd like to read it later, not now. We used to be called CB International, and we've had a, de- a decades-long partnership with this church, which I'll explain a little bit more in just a moment. But I would like to share with you this morning what I call God's passion for His planet. Think about that. What does He think and what does He long for for His planet today? God's passion for His planet. Let's just pray as we start. Father, I pray that You will speak to our hearts through Your Word and through my mouth this morning in the precious name and for the cause of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 5. I'd like to begin with the question of why. Luke chapter 5, why do we do missions? Why do we do what we do? I have been in my career for 30 years. I've been involved in the evangelization of the nations. I was a missionary with my wife and I for 10 years in beautiful Vienna, Austria, working among the communists in Eastern Europe. And I'll just have to say, Jeremy, as an aside, I have a a sermon I used to preach all the time from this passage you just read in Daniel, uh, because I worked among the communists of Eastern Europe for 10 years from 81 to 91, and in next month, November 9th, is the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. 20 years. It's amazing it's been 20 years, but I was there in Berlin the day the wall came down. I call it history's greatest prison break. It was amazing. And I've always believed that God brought down the Berlin Wall. And God brought down the Iron Curtain for the very same reason that you just read in the book of Daniel. He wrote on the wall, many, many, Tekel Parson, your time is up, you don't measure up, and your kingdom is divided up. And that's exactly what I believe God did to all those godless communist dictators all over Eastern Europe, that people said would never give up their power. But within a period of months, one after another toppled because God was in it. If you ever prayed for the persecuted church back in those days, God answered our prayer. And I think that's why uh, history changed and the wall came down. So praise God. But that was my former life. Why have I for 30 years been involved in world evangelism? Because of what began in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus called His first disciples. One day Jesus was teaching by the lake of Gennesaret. And with the people crowding around Him and listening to the Word of God, He saw at the water's edge two boats and left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and He asked Him to put out a little from the shore. And He taught them 
from the bow because there were so many people pressing around and wanting to hear his words that he actually got into the boat to teach. And so far, so good. Now, Simon, I think, was honored that Jesus chose his boat to teach from. But then something happened that annoyed Simon. Because after he finished, when he had finished speaking, he said, put out, your, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. You know, by the way, I, did, I chose this passage a long time ago. Little did I know <laughs> that we were going to be having fish on the stage this morning. Pretty interesting. <laughs> so the theme this morning is fish. And actually, the theme is we are still fishing for men and women and boys and girls. So Jesus said to Simon, let's go fishing. You remember the story by any chance? They had fished all night. Simon said, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Now I have four children. They are now age 27, 25, and I have twins that are 21. So they are out of the house. I have my grandson, my beautiful Asher, my first grandson. But when my kids were little, I loved going fishing with my kids. And some of our fondest memories are the kids... Uh, they just loved to go out with Dad because they had my undivided attention. And we'd sit in a boat for hours and just be together, and it was so much fun. But guess what? We hardly ever caught any fish. <laughs> Dad did not have the gift of finding the fish. But you know what? My kids still say those are some of their fondest memories, even though we didn't catch any fish. That night, they didn't catch any fish. And they had already cleaned their boats, they'd cleaned their nets, they'd put all the equipment away. That's a lot of work. They were going to wait till the sermon was over, and they were thinking just like you are about lunch. You know, we're actually for them it was breakfast after fishing all night. And then he says to them, let's put out the boats and let down the nets. Now wait a minute, Master. We worked hard all night and didn't catch anything. There are no fish out there yet. I love what Simon says. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. That's what I call reluctant obedience. Reluctant obedience. And you know what? God blesses us when we reluctantly obey Him. You know that? We don't always feel like obeying Him. In fact, I think nine times out of ten, we have to obey whether we feel like it or not. We often don't feel like it. Reluctant obedience. And what a blessing came after that reluctant obedience. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled their boats so full they began to sink. I was on the Sea of Galilee seven years ago, and I don't know exactly what kind of fish they caught that night, but I can guarantee you they were not goldfish. (laughs) But those are beautiful goldfish, aren't they? By the way, have you figured out the theme of these goldfish? Uh, If you go out in the lobby, there's a poster with all these fish swimming in one direction and one little fish swimming in the other direction. And that's kind of what happened here. Because, see, the whole world is swimming in one direction. And Jesus is calling us to reach the world by swimming in a different direction. And that's the idea, in case you haven't figured out the goldfish with the conference. I think it's a beautiful imagery. When they had caught all these fish, 
Simon's reaction is amazing. When Simon saw, when Peter saw this, he fell down at the knees of Jesus and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Hey, I'm so glad we have some young people here this morning in the audience. And I've asked the pastor, and he said, It's okay if you all actually answer some of my questions. So I'm going to ask you a question. Maybe even the young people would know the answer to this. What do fish have to do with sin? Why was the reaction of Peter, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, when he saw all the fish in the boat? Why why was that? Why did Peter react this way to all those fish? What do you think? You got an idea? No. (laughs) Anybody have an idea? What the fish have to do with sin? What? He was doubting the truth? He was scared because all of a sudden he realized God is in this boat. You see, the fish proved that Jesus really is the Savior and the Lord. He's the Lord of the fish who created the fish. And and if he wanted to bring every fish in that lake into those boats, boom, he just did it like that. The reason he was so afraid is all of a sudden he realized God was in the boat. What would you do if you were fishing? You have so many beautiful bodies of water around here in this part of the country. If you were out in a boat in one of these bodies of water, fishing with somebody, and all of a sudden you realize it was God in the boat with you, how would you react? What would be your response? Huh? Scared? I'll grab a life preserver. Yeah, I like that. I would jump out of the boat. You know, the Bible says no man can stand in the presence of the living God. And all of a sudden, they understood they were in the presence of the living God and it scared them. But you know the great thing about God? He forgives us of our sin. Perfect love casts out all fear. And the blood of Jesus washes us from all sin. And Jesus says to Simon Peter, do not be afraid. Stand up. And then he says one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I need you. I need your help to tell the world about me. Isn't that amazing? I've never gotten over that. I became a Christian when I was 19 years old as a very lost student at the University of Alabama. And I've never gotten over the fact after I came to Jesus and He forgave me and I was born again, that he actually wanted and would use me to tell others about him. Isn't that amazing? It's just amazing. Well, how did they respond? It says they pulled their boats up on shore and went home to talk to their families and pray about it. Is that what it says? They pulled their boats up on shore, pulled out their calendars, and considered if they could possibly fit this into their schedule. Is that what they did? They pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed Him. And began the greatest revolution the world has ever seen. I call it one of the most historic decisions in all of history. I think you and I are in this church this morning because of what those men did that day on that beach. Think about it. 
It's what I call the long chain of obedience throughout history where men and women have sacrificed their pleasures and their desires to follow Him to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. We are still today, after all these centuries, fishing for men and women and boys and girls. And I can't wait someday when I get to heaven to see Peter and his compadres who were on the beach that day and say, thank you. Thank you for laying aside everything and following Jesus. And you know, if you follow their story, most of them died martyrs' deaths before it was all over. They pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed Him. What did they leave on the beach that day? You know, what did they leave on the beach? Think about it. What what did they leave? Shout it out! They left their nets. And that's really significant. They left their nets, which were their tools, their livelihood was all about those nets. It was their most valued possession. Somebody said the fish. That's right. And that wasn't an average night's catch. All the boats were brimming full. They left cash on the beach that day. What else did they leave? Doubt. Thank you. They left their doubt. All of a sudden they had faith. They left their career. They left the boats. They left their families. And they followed Him. Well, you know, I've been in the work of missions for 30 years and I've noticed that, you know, God doesn't call everybody to do that. But He calls every Christian to sacrifice for Him. Take up your cross daily and follow Me. We all need to do our part if we're ever going to see the great commission fulfilled and i think that actually missionary work is like a war and for every one soldier we have on the battlefield we need a hundred people back at the pentagon backing them up and for every one soldier we have on the field we need a hundred christians back in our churches paying for them and praying for them and caring about them but we all have to do our part we're still fishing for men and women and boys and girls But I want to point out to you, the fishing has changed dramatically. The fish have changed, the lake has changed, the bait has changed, the world has changed. In 1950, there were seven cities in the world that had over 5 million people population. By the year 2000, there were 70 cities in the world that had over 5 million people. That's where the fish are today. The fish are in the great mega cities of the world. I just came from Sao Paulo, Brazil, three weeks ago. The largest city in the southern hemisphere. 25 million people, twice the size of Los Angeles. People have migrated to the mega cities of the world. In 1940, the world reached its first billion people. Today, we're adding a billion every decade. The world has changed. And how we fish and where we fish for ministry. How does that make you feel, by the way? That's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? It's just overwhelming. You know, people ask me, Hans, uh, are we making progress or are we losing ground? We are making progress. The church is bigger today than it's ever been in the history of the world. We are making tremendous progress at taking the gospel around the world and the gospel is exploding around the world, but we have much left to do. Where are these people? One out of every five people walking on planet Earth are Chinese. Do we have any Chinese here this morning? 
Okay, not a single one. Well, they're somewhere (laughs) and they're everywhere. 60% of the world's population is Asian, 13% African, 12% European, 9% Latin America, and little old us, the 5% North America. That little yellow strip right there, that's us. But did you know the American church is the wealthiest church on planet Earth? We have more Christian resources than anyone on the planet. That's why I travel around America speaking in churches, to remind us that to whom much is given, much is required. And we have to take what God has given us and use it for His passion for the planet. We have to understand that. So that is what I call the why. Why do we do missions? We do missions to take that message of Jesus all around the world. That's why we do missions. Now the what is found in Matthew 28. You remember Matthew 28? That's that great uh, missionary passage of Scripture. We won't take the time to turn to it, but a lot of us who've been Christians for a while, know Matthew 28. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and do what? Make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's what we call the Great Commission. And I like to remind people, He did not say go make decisions. He said go make disciples. I have found it's easy to travel. I've been to over a hundred countries on planet Earth. I find it easy to gather up a group of people all over the world and tell them about Jesus or show them the Jesus film, which I love. And how many of you would like to accept Jesus? And they'll raise their hands. But Jesus said, go and make disciples. It's easy to get decisions. It's hard to get disciples. And the real long-term end game is to make disciples of all nations. So how do we do that? What I call the five passions of God are really the work we do to fulfill the mandate. What would God want us to do to fulfill the Great Commission? I think there are five things. And if you're writing down notes today, you might want to do this. Five E's, I call them. And if you'll write this down, you will be an expert on missions. And you'll be able to dazzle your friends with your missionary knowledge Write it down. Number one, pretty simple, evangelizing the nations. We need to let every man and every woman and every boy and every girl on planet earth have the chance to hear the name Jesus Christ. And then to understand what does that name mean. Who is Jesus Christ? Evangelizing the nations. This picture I took in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where there are 2,000 slums that are named. They call them favelas. And in those favelas, in those slums, there are tens of thousands of street kids who have no home and no parents, and they just wander the streets. The girls become prostitutes. The boys become drug runners. And we have a ministry to work with these children, to lead them to Christ and to disciple them, and to actually give them job skills and an education. And this was a baptismal service where we were baptizing one of the young men who had recently come to Christ. He kind of looks like he's being coerced, doesn't he? (laughs) But actually, he was just a little afraid. He had just given his testimony, and he was about to be dunked under the water. And by the way, I think we should do baptismal services outdoors. This was outdoors, and I'll show you another picture in a moment of another outdoor baptismal service. So the first thing is to evangelize the nations. 
The second thing is to extend grace. To extend grace to the poor and suffering. This little girl, I took this picture in uh, Korcha, Albania. We found this little girl and her brother living on a garbage dump. Uh, on a heap of garbage at the, gar- at the city dump in Korcha. And we've built a home for girls. And if you actually look at that picture, she's got a smile on her face. Because she's come to know Jesus and she's come to have hope. And she's found people that love her. A lot of people need to know our love. And a lot of people can't hear our words until they sense our love for them. You know? I was in an AIDS orphanage in Mozambique, East Africa, about a year ago. In an AIDS uh, orphanage with 600 little kids. Babies on up to about five years old. We spent the whole day, and you know, all we, all we could do is hold those little babies in the name of Jesus. Just hold them. And the people, the nurses that ran the hospital said, you know, Hans, if you come back a year from now, over half of these kids will be dead from AIDS, and we'll have a whole other group. Doesn't that seem kind of hopeless? It is kind of hopeless. But you know what? You can love them, and you can hold them, and just hold them in the name of Jesus. I find when I read what Jesus did as He walked on planet Earth, He spent more time touching people, healing their needs, feeding them, than He did talking to them and throwing words at them. My point here is the work of the Great Commission is not just getting words to people. It's loving people into the Kingdom of God. So extending grace is an important work of missions. The need is so great... We have a magazine in Denver called the 5280 Magazine. Now, why do you suppose it would be called 5280? Hmm. You know what Denver's, Denver's called the Mile High City? 5,280 feet. <laughs> it's just an aside, but I just saw the cover this week of this magazine. The 283 of Denver's very best physicians. And you know how that struck me? 283 of the best. I have been in so many places on planet Earth where people have never seen a doctor. Like this village where I was in Mali, West Africa this spring. We have a nurse that works in this village with community health. It's called Community Health Evangelism. But the need is so great. We have a hospital in Ivory Coast where uh, in northern Ivory Coast, every day we have 200 patients that we allow to come into the hospital. And the masses line up in the morning and they're given numbers, like, you know, like you're at the ice cream store. And 200 people are given a number, and after 200, that's it for the day. And they'll wait all day long for their turn to see a nurse and maybe a doctor. The need is so great, and we have so much to offer. Well, the next step of missions is establishing churches. We need to see the church established. And this is in that very same country, in in another place where we were uh, actually baptizing 22 brand new believers. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And the way you make disciples is through the church, right? Can you really be a growing disciple of Christ outside the church? I don't think so. And so he said, go and make disciples. And so World Venture, our mission, is very passionate about establishing the church. But establishing the church is not enough. Number four is to see leaders equipped. 
equipping leaders for the church. There's no place on planet earth where there's a greater need to equip leaders than in China today as the church is exploding in growth in China. I'll be going to China on November 4th on another fact-finding trip because we're trying to find out where can we help train leaders for the church. The church is just exploding. Don't believe everything you think about China five or ten years ago. China is opening up as I saw the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe open up 20 years ago. We're seeing China open up today for missionary work as never before. And the number one need is to train leaders. Well, the fifth need is to encourage missions. I'm going to ask my uh, assistant, Jonathan Finley, to come forward. Jonathan is my president's intern this year with World Venture. He is a missionary, he and his wife, from Paris, France. How's that for a tough assignment, Paris, France? He's absolutely fluent in French. And uh, he and his wife have been missionaries there for almost 15 years. And this is a picture of Jonathan teaching a class in Africa. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Good to have you with me today. What is a guy like you, a missionary to France, doing teaching believers in Africa? Well, I think you're probably all still trying to get your mind around a missionary to Paris, France. You're imagining... Even evangelistic outreaches is wine tasting, I imagine, or something like that. But, uh, to help you get your, your minds around the French-speaking world, I'd like you to imagine the global French-speaking church. Imagine that everyone who's worshiping in French this morning was in the same room. What would that church look like? What's the demographic of that church? What's the ethnic makeup of that church? Twenty-two African nations speak French as official language alone. Uh, the French-speaking church globally is not wearing berets and whatever your stereotypes of, of French people are with baguettes and uh, glasses of, of red wine. It's an African church. The French-speaking church is an African church. Where I work in Paris is on the missional edge of the Christian movement, the, the French-speaking Christian movement. Uh, Paris may still be the center the power center of the French-speaking world, but it's an outermost part uh, of the of the Christian world. So, so what were you doing teaching this class oh, yeah, in I Africa? Didn't, I didn't actually answer your That's question, okay. did I? You know. Yeah. Uh, so you're in Corhogo, Cote d'Ivoire, which is the Ivory Coast. The point I'm trying to make is the Christian the the weight of the Christian uh, world has moved to the southern hemisphere, to Africa, Asia. And Latin America. There are far more Christians in French-speaking Africa than anywhere in French-speaking Europe. These are missionaries. I'm uh, teaching a missiology class at a Bible institute in the northern part of, of Ivory Coast. And that still doesn't answer how I got there, did it? Well, uh, you know, you're training Africans to go where? What's your end game? Well, I've, what I've been, would you hope to see if, if everything worked out the way you dream it would? I've been will? planting churches in, in the Paris region for 13 years now. And uh, every time we'd go into a, a new town where we thought there was no evangelical witness at all, guess who we would meet? Christian Africans who were more than happy to work shoulder to shoulder with us to establish churches. And I've now been a part of three church planning teams uh, working together with uh, other Europeans, at least one North American, usually just me, and, and many, many Africans from places like Congo, Togo, uh, Ivory Coast, even Senegal, uh, who've, who've worked with me. 
I began to realize that in order to do my job in Paris, I needed to know something about African culture and especially African Christianity. So I've been teaching now for five years in uh, Bible institutes in Paris in order to raise up missionaries. Uh, I didn't bring Jesus to Paris. He was already there. I followed him there, as many Africans, I believe, also will. So, uh, That's amazing. So it's really the black Africans who speak French or who are so responsive to the gospel, not what we think of as the typical white French people. Yeah, US, so these folks are going to reach France and Europe. You ask, what is the end game? Yeah, what is the end game? The verse is, uh, who shall we send? Uh, you're supposed to answer, send me. But I think we can also pray, send them. Uh, so I'd ask that you would pray with me that God would send and open doors for many, many uh, West Africans in particular to to uh, bring the gospel, to plant churches, to raise up leaders in, in Western Europe. Thank, Thank you, you, Jonathan. Give him a hand. It's great, isn't it? So the fifth step of missions is missions. Let's review the list. What's number one? Evangelizing. What's number two? Extending grace. What's number three? Establishing the church. Number four, equipping leaders. And number five, encouraging missions. I was at a conference with Asian church leaders in Taiwan. That's the picture on top. And we've been working in the Philippines and Indonesia and Japan and Hong Kong and Macau and Taiwan for over 50 years. And these are the church association leaders from those seven countries. And they said, Hans, it's time for us the receiving church to become the sending church. And see, that's the last step of missions. To mobilize people of other colors and other ethnicities to reach nations we can never reach. And that's so exciting. One of the reasons I'm excited about what's happening in missions today is that there are more missionaries today coming from non-European, non-North American countries than there are from the West. Isn't that exciting? And that's progress. World Venture is your partner in mission. Powerful partnerships that transform lives. Our vision is to see people of all nations transformed by Jesus Christ through partnership with His church. And I just want to highlight how that partnership works. This little diagram here is how I sort of show how missionary work really works. And there are three Powerful partnerships that make it work. Number one is you, the church. You know, we, World Venture, don't send out missionaries. You do. Because I think about it. Who did Jesus give the Great Commission to? To World Venture? No, to you. You are the believers in the local church. You are the ones who have been given the Great Commission. We are your partner, uh, but the sent ones are the missionaries. It's hard for a local church to send missionaries directly to the four corners of the world. So we are your partner in this three-way dynamic partnership. And I just want to read the list. You probably don't know that World Venture actually employs this list of people, but you sponsor them. And when you look at this goal of $400,000, this money goes to pay for missionaries so they have their salaries and the work funds that they need to do their work. And what we do is we gather up all those monies from all the churches and the individuals. We pay the people, we supervise them, we care for them, and we send them out into the world. 
you all support these missionaries who are world venture missionaries, but you know these people, you should. Bo and Michelle Columbine in Senegal. Well, they're actually in Paris right now studying French. Uh, John and Cindy Norton, uh, they're actually members of your church in Uganda now. Ken and Lucy Davis, Sao Paulo, Brazil, running our publishing operation. Vida Nova, which is the number one Christian publisher in all of Brazil. Uh, Malcolm and Mary Elliott Hogue, who have recently relocated to New Zealand to open up our ministry in New Zealand. Mike and Debbie Bannon, Lithuania, great people. Uh, Ralph and Sandra Thompson, Kenya. And Susan Hay, Uganda. Thank you so much for that partnership. See, because you pay, they can go out and be sent. So that's the what. Now I want to finish by the who. Not the singing group, but the who. Who is to do the work of missions? And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. So who, who was he talking to? Was he talking to me, the professional missionary? Was he talking to Jonathan? Was he talking to your missions committee here? No, I think he meant every single one of us who are followers of him. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I believe it's up to every local church to be missional. And what I mean by that is not to be mission-minded, but to be missional locally and globally. And what do I mean by that? A missional church orients every aspect of its life around God's mission. Understanding that every member of His church is sent to participate in the mission of God in the world. The purpose of the church is not for us to huddle together and encourage each other. Did you know that the purpose of the church is to grow together and then to reach out and to bring others in? You know, I actually speak in some churches that are annoyed when they have visitors. You know, really. Because they like the little club they've got going and they don't want to let anybody else into the club. Is that crazy? You know, our passion. Uh, Jonathan and I were just spoke at a church two weeks ago in Parker, Colorado, and when we left the church and we went down the driveway, there was a sign on the way out that said, you are now entering your mission field. I thought, that's cool. They get it. Every one of us are missionaries. Therefore, mission is not the domain of a particular group or committee or those with a special calling but rather every program, every function, and every activity of the church is aligned with God's mission. So a missional church doesn't have a great missions committee. It does, but it has more than that. You get the idea? Everything you do as a church is thinking about the lost around you. Our orientation point should be the lost, not us. Not what's best for us, but what's best for us to reach out in our own community and around the world. That's a missional church. And that's my desire for every single church that I have the opportunity to spend time with. I think it's important to remind us that it's up to us to keep sending missionaries. People ask me, <clears throat> you know, Hans, after all these years and all these national believers all over the world, do we really need to keep sending missionaries out from our churches? Great question. And I think, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus take the 
great commission back from us? Did he rescind it? Did he withdraw Matthew 28 from the church in North America? No. If we only sent money to support national workers overseas and didn't send our sons and daughters, would we really care about it? No. We would lose interest, and within a generation we would stop giving. Romans 10, 14 and 15. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them? And how can they tell them unless they are sent? Folks, we need to keep sending missionaries. So thank you for all you do. And I pray that you will just be motivated to really fulfill those pledges. To keep sending, it's so important. I want to finish by telling you a story. I've had the chance to travel in so many countries of the world, and of all the places I've been and the people I've met, I met Mother Teresa, and it was one of the most astonishing uh, encounters I've ever had. Uh, She really had an amazing impact on my life. She won the Nobel Prize for Peace. And by the way, she really earned that prize. (laughs) I'm just saying, you know. She, she was an amazing woman, and I had a chance to meet her in Calcutta, India in 1994. That's when this picture was taken. And Calcutta is one of the most, you know, people always ask me, Hans, what's the most cool and exciting country you've ever visited? And I can tell you a lot of great countries like Thailand and China and, and France. And, but of all the depressing places I've ever, if you ask me what is the most uncool place you've ever visited, I'd say Calcutta, India. It was so depressing because there's so much poverty and misery and squalor. And this little lady planted herself in the middle of that squalor. And I was at her compound where she takes in orphans and, and mothers who have no place to go. And, 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 and she just she changed the world and won a Nobel Prize. And she wasn't even five feet tall, just this tiny little lady. And I thought, how could you be so great? And here's what she said. We cannot do great things on this earth. And I thought to myself, well, that's not true. You have done great things. And she said, no, we can only do small things with great love. Wow. Is that profound? Every one of you can do that. Every one of you can be a Mother Teresa. Because every one of us can do those small things with great love that change the world. And I'm convinced that's the only way we fulfill the Great Commission. If every one of us is involved in the lifting, if every one of us is involved in the task. So let me bring it down to some applications. What are some small things that you can do? And I pray, today is the beginning of Missions Conference. It's going to be going all week. And next Sunday will be the wrap-up. Next Saturday night's the big banquet. I hope you'll come out. The big potluck. The mother of all church potlucks. (laughs) Unfortunately, Jonathan and I will not be able to be here, but uh, it's almost worth staying after hearing about that. What are some small things you can do caring about this topic? Caring about missionaries. Caring about the lost. Connecting with people who are reaching the lost. Praying for missionaries. When I was a missionary, I got so discouraged. You know, discouragement is the number one tool 
in Satan's arsenal to take out missionaries. Discouragement. And how do they overcome discouragement? There's nothing more encouraging for a missionary than to get an email or to get a, a note on Facebook or Twitter. I prayed for you today. Wow, is that encouraging. You know, that is so important. Reading the stuff about missionaries and their blogs and their newsletters and their emails. Sending missionaries out. Serving in missions. Giving. Giving until it hurts. You know, most of us give out of our abundance, but we need to learn to give sacrificially where it actually hurts. And then actually going. I met last night with a missions team. We had a delightful evening dinner together. I asked him, what are your goals? What is your, you know, what, are, what is your end game that you would love to see for this church? They said, well, we would like every single person involved in this church to go on a mission trip. I thought, wow, that's cool. What a great ambition. And they're breaking it down, and their goal is over a 10-year period of time to make sure everybody goes on a mission trip. Not everybody's going to go overseas, but everybody's going to go somewhere. And one very practical way you can get started is this green brochure. Some of you already got it. It'll be available in the lobby afterwards. It's the catalog, the Missions Challenge 2009 catalog, with all kinds of missions at home, locally, missions here in the United States, trips to, uh, here in the U.S., trips abroad, and short-term mission service. The theme of this conference is, Here am I, Lord, send me. And let me finish by this slide here. God does not begin by asking about our ability, but about our availability. You know, I find the biggest problem in churches is not ability. It's availability. Everybody seems to be more busy and overextended than ever before. Some of you are having trouble listening to me this morning because you're thinking so much about later, you know, tomorrow and this week and what just happened and our lives are so cluttered with, you know, all the technology and we're just so full with distractions. And when Jesus told those men, come, follow me, and you will be fishers of men, they laid aside all those distractions and they just, they did it. And today He's asking us the same thing. Will you follow me? It's not about ability. It's more about availability. I know everybody in this church is probably able to do something. One of those small things with great love. The big battle that we face in our lives is the availability battle. And that would be my challenge to you today. What is that small thing, Lord, that I can do in 2010 that I have not been doing that could help the cause of Jesus Christ here at home and around the world? That's my challenge to you. Let's pray. Father, stir our hearts afresh. Lord, help us to know what could we do out of our comfort zone, out of our bubble, to care more, to do more, to give more, to be more connected and involved going forward in that passion that You have for the planet. Lord, Stir my heart afresh, I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much.
Would you please find the words to hear the call of the kingdom in the order of worship? Would you please stand and let's, let's hear and respond to this call.